How are we doing? Did you guys have a good day? So did I, other than the fact that I nearly froze to death. Um, wowzers. How many of you did not come equipped for the summer blowout sale? Uh, not me. Hey, uh, I've had such a good week with you guys. Are you guys bummed you have to go home tomorrow? I am too. Hey, before we begin, I think they'll be up here at the end, but can we thank Mikey and Sarah for all the work that they put in? I am so thankful for them and all their labor to make camp possible. It's been such a, a fun time for me to be here this week with you guys. I want to just say I'm thankful and impressed just by your own attentiveness to listen to the Word of God. I told you at the beginning of the week that I was going to talk to you like an adult. And I think I obviously, I think, have fulfilled that promise. And one of the things that I just want you to know is that you meet the expectation of just even my hope and prayer that you guys would be able to listen in and know that the truth of God is relevant, applicable, and contemporary for your life. And it's interesting and it's wonderful. And I'm eager to understand and know it more myself. And I'm thankful that many of you have demonstrated that that's the uh, burden of your own heart. Can I pray for us this evening? And then we'll jump in to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to hang out this week. What a fun time we've had together. Lord, would you please move through your Holy Spirit tonight? Would you work in our hearts? God, as we go down the hill, I think there's so many different thoughts that come upon the mind of a student or even a counselor, a youth pastor. How can we keep going how can we further deepen our love for Christ and our love for your word? And Lord, I think even about the things that we've done here. And uh, Lord, I'm just praying that we would all understand that what happens at camp, even though it's an abnormal experience throughout our year, what happens here should be a normal part of our everyday life. Worship, the reading and studying of your word, and interaction with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would drive them to those things, a love for your word, a love for your people, and a desire to know you more. God, would you fill me with clarity tonight as we look to your truth one final time? Thank you for the privilege that that is, even as Mikey was talking yesterday in the missions talk, how there are millions, if not billions, of people around the world that could never do what we're about to do this evening. They're huddled in basements and barns at midnight so that they can hear from the word of God in secrecy because they live in places that reject the God of the Bible. And so, Lord, we're thankful for the rich privilege that it is. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well. Not lot, well, first of all, uh, I just want to say congratulations to the Golden State Warrior fans. Um, uh, yeah. I was gonna, I'm actually going to change what I'm going to talk about tonight to the problem of evil, why God continues to bless the wicked. But I, uh, we're going to be looking tonight 
mainly at John 14, 15, and 16. So you can turn in your Bibles and give me a yip-yip when you're there, okay? That's a lie. You're not there. Okay. Not long ago, America was a land of Christian values. The typical family would find themselves within a church pew on a Sunday morning. There were those, of of course, that didn't come to church, but they weren't hostile towards those who went. They were indifferent to people that went to church. They said, yeah, I mean, I understand everyone's at church on a Sunday, but that's just not my thing. The winds were at the backs of Christians, meaning that if you were a Christian, it was helpful to you. Being a Christian was good for business. It was good for job applications. If you wanted to get into a good school, you would put, I am a Christian. If you were in sales, you wanted to be identified, not just as a Christian, but as a greeter at your church, a deacon, if you will. Can you trust Bob, the salesman? Absolutely. He goes to First Baptist. You can trust him. Being a Christian was good for business. But those, one, those winds that were once at our backs as Christians are now blowing directly in our faces as those who were once indifferent to the claims of the Bible have become enraged over the thought that an invisible God gets to govern my body, my choices, and my morality. It's now bad for business to say that you're a Christian. It's bad for your university applications The USA might be home of the free and the brave, but it's becoming increasingly hostile towards those who freely and bravely profess the exclusivity of Jesus Christ or the Bible's view on sexuality or that there is only one truth. I read the story uh, once to Golden Hills in the house. Yep, yep. I want you to hear the hearing of a man named Russ Vaught. He's applying for the Department of Housing and Budget for the U.S. government. It's an official position. And he's being cross-examined by a guy you may be familiar with. It's an interview, if you will. And Russ Vaught is being interviewed by Bernie Sanders. And I want you to listen to the exchange. This was recently. And Russ Vaught is applying for a position. Now, here's what... Bernie says, he says, I understand you are a Christian, but the United States is not composed of people that are just that. I understand it might be a majority religion, but there are others of different religions here and around the world. Do you think that those who are Christian are to be condemned? Those who are not Christian are to be condemned. First of all, this is a theological question. It has absolutely nothing to do with applying for a government position. We're tracking? Here's the response of Russ Vaught. He says, thank you for probing on that question, Senator. As a Christian, I believe all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. Bernie insisted, you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and stand condemned, do you think that was respectful of other religions? And Russ Vaught responded and said, 
I wrote a poster based on being a Christian for a Christian school on the centrality of Jesus Christ on salvation. Here's what happened. Uh, Russ Vaught had wrote a little piece of an, an article, if you will, for a, a private Christian school. And he talks about the centrality of Jesus Christ, that he is the only way, the only lo- uh, life, and the only truth. Bernie found it. And it's being used in his interview process and his examination and Russ's response, I, I like. He says, thank you for probing on that question. I believe all people are made in the image of God. They're worthy of dignity, dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. And Bernie says, but you believe other people stand condemned if they don't know God. And then Bernie says this. You can watch it on YouTube. He looks left and he looks right. And he says, I would simply like to say that this nominee is not what our country is all about. That's a freeze-the-frame moment in USA history. This guy was votes away from becoming the most powerful man in the world. And he just said that if you believe that Jesus is the only way to God, you're not what this country is about. Don't believe me? Why don't you ask Kelvin Cochran, who lost his position as the fire chief in Atlanta because he teaches a first grade Sunday school class and taught that marriage is between a man and a woman and had to go to weeks of sensitivity training. Don't believe me? Why don't you listen to the words of Megan Fox? Megan Fox is being interviewed after the release of the Transformers movie. And she's being asked, it's a funny type of bon voyage, okay. She's being interviewed and she was asked, what would you do to keep an evil robot from destroying planet Earth? What would you do? And she said this, I'd barter with him. Instead of destroying the whole world, can you just take out all the white trash, hillbilly, anti-gay Bible believers in middle America? And the reporter interviewing Megan goes, almost as he was saying, I wish. Here's something I'd like for you to understand. If you're a Christian, you are an exile. An exile means you are living in a place that is not your home. You don't belong here. And the trend and trajectory of our country is going to make you feel that more and more. You don't belong here. The culture is foreign to us. This culture wants to press us into its mold. But we live, if you're a Christian, as citizens of heaven, not of earth. Even in recent weeks, you know what's funny? As we talk about the life of the unborn within the womb, who does the media portray as the mean ones? It's Christians. Because they can have a say on the life of a baby inside the womb. They're the ones that are narrow-minded. They're the bigots. It's Christians. They take away the rights and privileges of women. 
So the news and social media mocks, spits, and scorns at those who profess Christ because you are intolerant, because conviction in a world of tolerance will always seem to be bigotry and hatred. Now, how do we live in such a world, in such a context like this? How can we possibly live as an agent of influence in a world of pollution and darkness? Well, in the text we're going to look at tonight, Jesus Christ is going to provide for you three tremendous promises so that you might live effectively for him in a world of hostility and opposition. Three promises to root your life in so that you might live as a disciple, an ambassador in a world that hates him. Turn to John 14 if you're there. John 14. Yep, yep. Okay. Now we're turning back from where we were last night. This is John 14. Here's what's happening. This is the night before Jesus was about to be crucified. And he's going to give one of the most rich, theologically, uh, like profound discourses in all of the Bible. In John 14, he tells his disciples, I'm going to die. And here's the irony. Instead of the disciples offering him comfort, Jesus is there comforting his disciples. In John 14, he gives us the first tremendous promise to root your life in. And it is the promise of heaven. The promise of heaven. John 14, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus says, do you believe in God? Believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's saying, remember, Philippians 3 says, your citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And Jesus is leaving earth. And he's telling his disciples, oh, be comforted. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This world is not your home. It'll try to squeeze you into its mold. It'll try to impress itself upon you. But you must remember one thing, and you must root yourself in this tremendous promise. Your home, Christian, is heaven. Your home is heaven. The question that haunts mankind is the question that Job once asked. Job asked, if a man dies, will he live again? Jesus, the disciples are asking, what happens when we die? Don't you want so badly to believe that there is life after death? Don't you want so badly to believe there's something else for us? Don't you want to believe that heaven is not just some sort of imagination or fairy tale that Christians have been duped into thinking? Jesus turns and says, if it were not so, he's saying, if this was untrue, if heaven were a myth or a legend, I would never tell you that you were going to go there. Jesus says, I am a God of truth. I don't tell any lies. And let the God who only speaks the truth tell you a truth that provides tremendous comfort in a world that is increasingly hostile towards you. Root yourself in this promise 
heaven is my home. He says, I go to prepare a place. And he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places, verse two. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. He's saying, there is a room for every single person in heaven. There are palatial accommodations for you in glory. When you and I get to heaven, it will not be a massive warehouse. You will get to heaven and there will be a room with your name on it, prepared for you by the king of glory. And he says, find comfort in this. When you get there, there will be a room with your name on it. And you won't be welcomed by a greeter. You'll be welcomed by the king. This is the first and simplest and best part of heaven. Jesus will be there. And Philip is going to ask a question, and it kind of speaks to our own stupidity at times. We just don't get it right away. So verse 5, he says, or Thomas, sorry, he said, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus responds with the sixth I am statement in this gospel. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You might be able to miss a few things in theology, but you will never be able to miss this. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. This is the heart of Christianity. Jesus says, root yourself in this tremendous promise. Heaven is your home. Secondly, he gives us another great promise. And it might surprise you that this promise is great, but I'll explain why. Secondly, Jesus gives us the promise of persecution. Look at John 15 with me, okay? Give me yip-yip when you're there. Verse 18, John 15, verse 18. Okay, Jesus says, he's continuing to talk, and the irony is that Jesus is trying to provide his disciples with comfort. Then you might be wondering, why on earth is he about to talk about persecution if he, if he wants to comfort his disciples? Let me read in John 15, 18. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. For if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. You might be asking, Johnny, why... Why is persecution a promise that we should rest our life in? Well, here's why. It's so that when it comes, it's expected and not a surprise. Don't be surprised by persecution, Jesus says. He looks you in the eye and says, if the world hated me, killed me, rejected me, shunned me, why do you think they'll love you? Why? 
In fact, the question to be asked is if you look at contemporary pop culture and there's a Christian that the entire world loves, you'd have to consider, is that guy really representing Jesus Christ? You live in a context where people think that if you act like Jesus, the entire world will love you. But hear the words of Jesus who says, if you act like me, it's very likely that the world will hate you. Not because of how you act, not because you're a jerk, but because the truth is always offensive. I just want to read this, and I know that you maybe have heard this before, but I want to remind you. What happened to the disciples? Well, first of all, they would have seen the resurrected Christ and they would have been lit on fire with passion for God. But then they would have remembered the words of Jesus who says, the world is going to hate you. So here's how church history records the end of the disciples. Andrew, the brother of Peter, he was killed by crucifixion. He was hung alive for two days on the cross, and he was pleading with sinners as they walked by him. Bartholomew was skinned alive and crucified near western Turkey. James, the brother of John, was beheaded or stabbed with a sword by Herod Agrippa around 44 AD near Palestine and not far from where he was a local missionary to the Jews in Judea. His accuser that killed him was later converted. James, the son of Alphaeus, he was the first bishop of Jerusalem and he was martyred in his early 90s by being thrown from a pinnacle of the temple at Jerusalem and then stoned to death and bashed with a club. John, he is the only one, the one writing this gospel, is the only apostle who did not meet a martyr's death, but he was sentenced to the Isle of Patmos, where he was and died at age 100. Jude was martyred by being beaten with a club and then crucified in 72 AD. Matthew was martyred about 60 AD by being staked and speared to the ground. He preached the gospel in Ethiopia and was killed for questioning the morals of the king. Simon Peter was martyred by crucifixion at Rome by Nero around 68 AD, upside down at his request because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Philip was said to have been tortured, impaled by iron hooks in his ankles, and then hung upside down to die. Simon, the zealot, he was assassinated, martyred likely by crucifixion in 74 AD, and then sawn in half. Thomas was martyred because he was thrust, he was thrust through by a spear in India. You get the picture? You may be going, why would you go into the details? Come on. First of all, I think this serves as a good reminder. The disciples didn't die for a made-up story. One of the clearest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, first of all, no one anticipated it. And then everyone who saw the risen Christ 
was slaughtered. Secondly, Jesus says, listen, the world is, is really going to hate you. I just read one-third of the accounts on a list I wrote down in five minutes. And Jesus says, this is a promise. Don't be surprised. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we will inherit the kingdom of God. A Christian life is full of opposition and hostility. And you might be wondering, man, how are we going to be able to endure this? How can we live in a world that's so increasingly hostile towards us? How can I, how can I be bold? I was talking with Ethan today, and he's saying, man, how can I be more bold on my Christian school campus? Maybe you're wondering, how can I be an agent for Jesus Christ? Man, you should see the people at my school. They hate God. They want nothing to do with God. Well, there's one more tremendous promise to root your life in. Number one, the promise of heaven. Number two, the promise of persecution. And third here, there's the wonderful promise of the Holy Spirit. Look at John 16 with me. Okay. John 16, 5, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, watch this. I mean, this is nuts. He says, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying to his disciples, Jesus is God incarnate, meaning he's in the flesh. And he's saying, listen, you got to understand this. You're going to get a better player when I leave. You may be going, what? He's saying, it's to your advantage. You're better off with the Holy Spirit than you are with me. And the disciples would have looked at him and gone, what are you talking about? You're God. And Jesus would have said, so is he. And he is never going to leave you. He's going to indwell you. He'll be not just at your side, but in your heart. And it's to your advantage that I leave because the Holy Spirit is going to come to you. Now, we live in a world where there is so much ambiguity and confusion regarding the person of the Holy Spirit. So who is he? What does he do and how does he work? And that's what I wanna do for the remainder of our time. And there's so many ridiculous things. I, I was reading that book, Heaven is for Real. Have you guys heard that book? It's about this little boy who supposedly goes to heaven and sees God. It sold 5 million copies in the opening eight months. And I remember serving as a waiter at Rattler's Barbecue in Santa Clarita. And there was like the book club that would meet and they would be folding their silverware and talking about the book. And I'll never forget it. And they were talking about how the little boy went to heaven and saw the Holy Spirit. He defines the Holy Spirit in his book. He says, the Holy Spirit is a blue transparent ghost. He says, it's a blue transparent ghost you can see through. A blue transparent ghost you can see through who shoots down power from heaven. And Jesus next to him is a short person who makes up for it in power. And people went, well, he saw God. Well, the, the problem is it is totally wrong. It's not at all what the Holy Spirit is. He's not a blue transparent ghost. He's a person. 
The Holy Spirit is equal with God. He is the creator of the universe. It says in Genesis 1-2, he was hovering over the surface of the deep. He is the creator of all things. He's equal with God. Now, what does he do? And I want to show you this, and I want to help you out here. And this will feel a little bit uh, maybe structured, but I want you to have some sort of train tracks for who the Holy Spirit is and how he works in your life. Because let me tell you this, unless you understand the Holy Spirit, you really have missed the power in the Christian life because you cannot live a single moment of faithfulness to God in of your own power. You are incapable of doing anything that honors God apart from God. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Do you know what the Greek word is for nothing? Nothing. You can do literally nothing. You can't honor God by going, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. You need the Holy Spirit. And yet there's a, a massive tragedy in our world today that no one knows how he operates. And we sing songs that testify to our own confusion regarding the blessed person of the Trinity. Well, how's he gonna work? Well, John 16, eight. Number one, he's going to convict the world of sin. He convicts the world regarding sin. 16a, it says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, verse nine, because they do not believe in me. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in your life is he causes you to be convicted over the sin in it. Maybe even there's been times this week or in the past where you felt the presence of conviction in your heart and you knew that you were wrong and you knew that there was sin in your life that you needed to confess and repent of. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and he moves through God's word and he convicts you and he causes you to realize that there needs to be a change. There needs to be confession to God and there needs to be a, a, a turning in your life. Secondly, not only does he convict the world regarding sin, in verse 13, it says that he guides us into the truth. It says, but when the he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. The Holy Spirit leads you into the truth. God is not a God of lies. He's the spirit of truth. And so here's what God does through his spirit. He inspires the scriptures. He is the author of the scriptures and he points believers to the word of God. The gospel record in John 14, 26, it says, these things will be brought to your remembrance through the power of the spirit because the gospel record wasn't just based upon the memory of the disciples. It was the Holy Spirit working in their minds so that they might recall and then tell exactly what happened. He guides us into the truth. You know, there's so many buzzwords in evangelical Christianity that I just want to address. We talk about how we interact with God. And the words I hear often are encounter, breakthrough, and experience. I want to experience God. I want an encounter with God. And I want to break through. And I want to just talk to you for a minute about what that means because it relates to the person of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit primarily works progressively in your life. So any time that you maybe hear something, I remember, I think years back, I told you a story about when I was in Australia and I went to one of the churches in Australia. And I remember this guy saying, you need to go up on the mountain and find your inner lion. And there's this moment where he's saying, you have all been waiting kind of in this fog of your relationship with God. You need to go up on the mountain, find your inner lion, and then you'll really find your shout. 
and your shout and your lion. And everyone's like, what is he talking about? He's talking about that there is going to be this definitive moment where all of a the sudden there's this breakthrough and you see God like you've never seen him before. And I just want to tell you and encourage you, the Christian life is primarily progression over time. That God deepens our understanding with him as he guides us into the truth. If you're waiting for some sort of massive experience, I just want to tell you that's largely divorced from the way that the Bible describes and prescribes Christian growth. Christian growth comes as we pursue God and we pursue him in his word and amongst his people, not by calling out for some sort of experience. Now, with that, let me explain this. The Christian life is experiential. I grew up in an environment where I think that there's this element of everything, everyone is prioritizing experience. And the other side of things, there's people that just go truth, 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 truth. And they're enemies with each other. But I just want to tell you that truth fosters experience with God. The psalmist doesn't say believe and affirm that God is good. He says taste and what? He says, taste and see, because this is a reality that should be impressed upon your heart, that the more you pursue the truth, and as the Spirit guides you to the truth, it fosters emotion and experience. So even as we come to worship, we don't come to worship emotionally, we come to worship theologically, and when we have a high and exalted view of God, our emotions are then brought into, into flame, because we realize God is good. So often we pursue emotion before we pursue doctrine. Doctrine is the foundation and fuel of emotion. And so the Holy Spirit guides us into the truth. And as he guides us to the truth, our emotions and a greater love and affection for Jesus Christ. And then we can say with the psalmist, magnify the Lord with me. He's good. Taste and see that he is good. I can just ask you, I can ask students, counselors, and pastors, When's the last time you've grabbed someone and went, I just got to tell you how good God is. He's wonderful to me. He's wonderful. Holy Spirit guides you into truth, but the, it's never just, it never terminates within itself. Because as he reveals the truth, it brings us into greater communion with God. I just said that he reveals the truth because the third thing the Spirit does is that he helps us to understand the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, you can write down these passages. 1 Corinthians 2, 13. He says, Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now listen to this. Let me ask you a question. Do you not care at all what the Bible says? Are you disinterested in it? Do you not understand anything you're hearing? Well, here, let me tell you this. One of the testimonies of Scripture is that the person that doesn't have the Spirit of God is never going to be able to understand what's happening here. Maybe they'll understand it to a point where they'll reject it, but verse 14 says, A natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Meaning that sometimes when you go, Hey, these, these people think the Bible's dumb. The Bible says, well, that's exactly what they're going to think if they don't know God. For they are foolish to them, and they cannot understand it because they are spiritually appraised. They're ignorant of the meaning of scriptures because they don't have God's spirit working within their hearts. Maybe you've wondered, man, it's, it's awesome to be at camp. It's awesome because I, the word of God is explained to me. But let me, let me just tell you this. If you're a child of God, 
you've been given the Spirit of God to help you understand the Word of God. And you pray with the psalmist, as I've prayed already, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful things within your word. Meaning that you can't understand scripture without the spirit. Number four, the Holy Spirit equips us and empowers us for a life of service. Mikey said this yesterday and it was great. He talked about, remember we've been given a great commission by our king. We're to go into all the world and what? Talk to me. Talk to me. Make disciples. And then he says, there's a great power. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How is Jesus going to be with us always if he's ascended to heaven? What's the answer? He gives to us his Holy Spirit. And so the way that we have been empowered and equipped to serve in this life is because God gives us the spirit of God and enables us to approach a hostile world with boldness and with courage. In Acts 4, the apostles are beaten and then they're lashed and then they get out of prison. And instead of stopping to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, they gather and pray for more boldness. And it says that after they prayed, the entire room was shaking because of the power of God. Maybe one of the reasons why at times the Christian life seems monotonous to you is because you are robbing yourself of one of its greatest joys and it is employing and stewarding the power of God to proclaim the Son of God to a world that does not know God. That's what makes life interesting. That's literally why you're here. If God saved you so you might be in a personal relationship with him, you have to think through, wait, why doesn't he just take us to heaven right now? Well, he's left you here to be his ambassadors, but you're not gonna be his ambassadors without his power. So the spirit of God is your power in the Christian life. Fifth here, the Holy Spirit assures us that we are the children of God. In Romans eight, it says, for all those who are being led by the spirit of God, verse 14, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 16. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the chief responsibilities of the spirit of God is to impress upon your heart that you are a child of God. I wanna ask you this. Everyone look at me for a second. If I were to ask you, balcony, how are we doing? Nice, okay. If I was to ask you, do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are going to heaven? I want you to think about this. Do you have zero doubts that you've been made right with God? Zero. Maybe going, I think so, I, I hope so at times, but I went this, I, I prayed this prayer three years ago at camp, but then I did this. But I want you to understand something biblically. And we talked about this last night with the youth pastors. The only person that wants you to have assurance more than you want to have assurance is Jesus Christ himself. No one longs for you to have certainty of your eternal salvation more than Jesus Christ. Jesus is not in heaven thinking, you know, let's tease him. Let's tease him, Gabriel. Let's leave him with absolutely no certainty or assurance that they've done enough, that they're gonna actually hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
Every other religion, their view of God is that God is up there going, he better do more. I never want to let him feel comfortable because then he'll stop working. And when he stops working, man, he'll stop earning. So I never want to let him off the hook. The God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, longs for you to know with absolute certainty that you are a child of God and you're not a child of the world. And the way that he settles that conviction upon your heart is by providing you with the spirit that functions as a seal. The seal is this idea of a wax and a press that was used on official documents, especially for adoption. And it means, boom, mine, I own it. That's my kid. And the Holy Spirit functions in Ephesians 1 as well as a seal to tell you upon your own heart, I am God's and he is mine. He's my father and I'm his child. And no matter what happens in this world, I have a heavenly home with my heavenly father. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. Meaning that it is a command by God to know where you stand eternally. And here's why that matters. Your growth into the image of Christ, tracking, is largely rooted in understanding your identity in Christ. Meaning that you are dead to sin. Like if Jesus died, it says in Romans, that you also died with him. Your old life, it's gone. Your sins paid for, but also the power of sin over your life. You are still vulnerable to Satan's schemes, but you are no longer under Satan's rule. Which means that you never have to look at pornography again. You don't have to do anything if you're a Christian. You don't serve that master. You serve Jesus Christ. So your growth into the image of Christ is rooted in an understanding of your identity. I'm a child of God. I'm dead to sin. Now think with me. If that's how you grow by going, I'm dead to sin. I serve Jesus. I I don't want to live that way any longer because I don't have to. I've been set free. But if you doubt that you're saved, you don't think that way. Does that make sense? You don't begin to think that way. You go, man, I don't actually know if I'm a Christian. So maybe I'm just going to continue to live in the sin because I've I've never been saved at all. So having assurance of your salvation is fundamental to Christian growth because then even you get this idea in your mind that you begin to pursue God so that you might earn his favor. The Christian pursues God from a position of favor because they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So they they then pursue and seek to be like Jesus because they've already been adopted. They don't seek to be like Jesus so that they can be adopted. Your assurance matters. You should know with certainty. You don't have to know the time and the date. I sure don't. But I can know the Holy Spirit testifies within my own heart. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. Just briefly while we're here on number five, how can I know if I'm saved? Well, I can just ask you simply, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And if you say yes, it says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then you might be asking, Johnny, how do I know if I believe? Because I said I believed two years ago and then I, I did the same sin over and over and over again. 
Let me just ask you three just simple questions that might serve as a MRI to the condition of your heart. What do you love? Do you genuinely love the biblical Christ? Do you genuinely love his people? First John says that if you are a child of God, you will have a genuine affection for the people of God. Who do you love? Do you love his word? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's not perfect love, but it's evident love. It's there. So ask yourself this question. Do I really love Jesus Christ? If you don't, you're not a Christian. That's the most simple, fundamental evaluation and examination to determine whether or not you're in Christ. Do you love him? Second, are you humble? We read this the other day. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. One of the ways to determine whether or not you've been changed by God is if you can consider the character of God and still have a large view of yourself. People that sing amazing grace are people that know they don't deserve it. And because they recognize they don't deserve it, they're marked by humility. Third, do you bear fruit? Jesus says, by this you will know if you love me, if you what? Keep my commandments. Obedience is not what earns the favor of God, but it demonstrates that you've been changed and transformed by the love of God. And if you can look at your life and go, I bear no fruit that resembles Christ, you need to evaluate if you've ever truly known him. The Holy Spirit, number six, he intercedes on our behalf. Maybe you've been thinking, man, I want to know God more. I don't know how to pray, though. I don't even know how to pray with the Holy Spirit. You know what he does? I love that, that verse in the hymn, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. That's really what we are. God lisps with us. Do you ever get the prayer and go, God, 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 I just, I just, I just, God, will you please, please, please? It's not like God is in heaven going, what a stupid idiot. Do you hear this guy? Pull yourself together. No, that's not what he's doing. You are a last girl. Okay, I had to. That's not what God is doing. Do you know what it says the Holy Spirit does? It says he takes that lisping and he intercedes for you to God. It says, he goes, I, I hear what he's saying. I know what she's saying. What she wants is to know you more. And so what the Holy Spirit does is take your imperfect prayers and he takes them to our perfect heavenly father. And says, oh yeah, she, she's not fluent. And I, you don't have to be. The tax collector wasn't over there reciting eloquent, recited prayers. He's beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Ah, God, please, please, I don't know what else to say. Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not perfect prayers. It's the interceding work of our Holy Spirit that translate our gibberish to a good God who hears our prayer. Number seven, lastly, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. 
That's a big word. How many of you don't know what the word sanctify means? Come on, let's be honest. It's a big word, okay? Okay, perfect. Sanctify means this. Sanctification is the process by which you as a child of God become continually conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, okay? And this is what the Bible says. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, write it down. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So if it's the will of God for your life, you better understand what this word means. You don't have to search for the will of God. You need to obey the word of God or the will of God because it's revealed to you. The will of God is that you become more and more like him. And the Holy Spirit, here's how he works. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, meaning that as you see God more clearly in the scripture and you behold him, you look at him, you gaze him, you become more and more like the image of the one you behold. I remember when I was a kid, I, I truly thought I would be on the Lakers at this point in my life. Truly. I was chubby and, and not athletic, but I really believed that. And you know what I did? I would watch YouTube videos of Kobe all the time. I'd be in my bedroom. Any basketball players? Any of the redeemed in the house? Okay. Kobe would grab a basketball and he'd be on the, kind of like on the block by the free throw line. Anybody know his move? What's he going to do here? He's going to arch his back. Why? Create some space. He wants to create some space from his defender. He'd do that, then he'd pull away, and then he'd pop a J or hit pow. Now, pow Gasol, come on, get with it. I used to watch that all the time. And I'd be outside... And my neighbors must have been thinking, what is this kid doing? He's never going to go anywhere. He's not even going to make private high school, you know, team. So, but I'm out there, arching my back. And my brother's six inches shorter than me, and he's just dominating me. But it's because I'm trying to become like what I see. I'm imitating Kobe. I remember when I was in junior high, if you guys know Allen Iverson, he was just the coolest. And he used to have these finger sleeves. And you better believe I showed up to school with finger sleeves. <laughs> I'm in there. I got baggy corduroy shorts, finger sleeves, cornrows. No, not the cornrows. <laughs> but I wanted to become exactly like that which I was beholding. I wanted to become like those guys. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is you become like the one you behold. Do you want to be like Jesus Christ? Nod your head if you do. Then here's the promise of the Holy Spirit. As you behold Jesus Christ in his word, the Holy Spirit will open your eyes so that you go, he is wonderful. And then you'll want to be like him. And then he will cause you to grow in your affections for the one that saved you and will cause you to grow in your disdain for the things that cause the heart of God to be grieved. And I want to just touch on this as we kind of get ready to land the plane here. These were seven realities about the Holy Spirit, but can I just give you one more about the Holy Spirit? And it's that you can deeply grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed. Do you know what that means? It means that if you're a child of God, every single time you're tempted to sin, 
you need to understand this, that your sin is not just something God rejects and opposes. It's something that deeply grieves the heart of God. Every single glance at pornography, every single word of gossip, every time you slander, every single lustful glance, every dishonoring of your parents isn't just something that God says, ah, I hate that. For the child of God, it's something that grieves God. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That same word is used when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die and his disciples walk away deeply distressed. They're sad. Something you need to understand about the Holy Spirit is that when you sin, if you're a Christian, you need to understand that God is deeply grieved because he says that I died for him. I died for her. Why would they do this? God is grieved not just because of what sin does to him. It's not just because it's an offense to him. Do you know why God is grieved? I got Lily, my daughter, in the back. She's back there. And I want you to think with me. If I saw Lily eat a razor blade, knowing that she loved it and didn't do anything about it and didn't care. Would you question my love for my daughter? No, I would be grieved if I saw my child doing something that did them damage. I would be grieved because fathers grieve because they love. God is grieved over your sin because he deeply loves you. And he knows what sin does to you. He loves you as his child and he knows that sin robs you of joy. It blinds you from seeing God. It's never worth it. And he's a good father and he's going, man, I've, got, I've done everything for you so that you might have life and life abundantly. Heaven is your home. Why are you eating garbage? Why are you partaking in the sin that I died for? It's not satisfying. It's never been worth it. You'll never be happy. And the fruit of my spirit in a world of dis- depression and despair and sadness, the fruit of the spirit is love. What's next? Joy. I'm grieved because if you obey me and walk in the spirit, your life will be characterized by joy. And maybe part of the reason you've never tasted joy and your life isn't defined by it is because you constantly grieve the spirit. And even 1 Thessalonians says, you can quench the spirit. Jesus says, this is a tremendous promise to you. If you want to live in a world that's increasingly hostile towards you, you need to understand that you can have joy even among, amongst tribulation. That was Sarah's seminar, right? The only reason that a person can say, I have joy in the darkest valley is because the spirit of God testifies with them and they're a child of God. Tells them that heaven is their home. And the spirit of God in Romans 8 is also the one that's gonna tell you there is nothing that can remove you from the love of God. Because Romans 5 says the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into your hearts. I'm out of time. 
I hope it's obvious. Is that I love the Holy Spirit. He's worthy of our worship and worthy of our attention. And I hope you devote your life to him. I've had a great time with you guys this week. I'm so thankful for your attentiveness. And uh, there's a large chance I won't see you till heaven. So um, I love you guys. Uh, can I pray for you? Okay. Holy Spirit, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that, Lord, you are the divine author of scripture. God, please transform us into the image of Christ. There's, this is surely not an exhaustive approach to the spirit of God, but, Lord, hopefully just something that would whet our appetites so that we would go, man, I want to know the one that lives within me. The spirit of God is a wonderful study. It says in John 14, we looked at this on Monday morning, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That word is tabernacled, meaning that Jesus made his presence known on the earth in a human body. But in 1 Corinthians 6, it says that the presence of God isn't in a temple, not in a tabernacle, and not in a body by Jesus. It's now indwelling every single Christian because we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we live our life not just because we believe in someone, but because someone lives and resides within us, the Spirit of God. We love you, Lord, and I'm so thankful for this crew. Thank you for week two. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, I love you guys.